0: annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.
1: Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Hove. Welcome to our movie review of Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. I want to, as always, thank our Patreon supporters and one-time contributors for helping to make this show possible. If you want to learn more about the podcast or to donate, please visit our website at com. one word. I want to make a quick note about the podcast as well. Um, I've, we've gotten some great feedback from you guys and around uh, the movie reviews and I want to thank you very much for that. Uh, we absolutely love it when you guys do send us uh, you know positive feedback. really enjoy uh, reading that so don't be afraid to send us some positive feedback if you want to. Um, but I do know that some people are, are asking questions around you know what's happening with the historical narrative. Uh, they really like, um, the long dialogue episodes that I've created around the history of the Cold War. And we will be making more of those. Don't worry. I'm actually in the process of writing up our episodes about the Korean War now. Um, but there's a lot of documents and books around the Korean War, so I'm reading through those. Um, about I'm about halfway done with the books. I have about 20 books on the Korean War right now that I'm trying to get through. Um, so in the interim, before I can finish reading through that material and then crafting a narrative around the Korean War for you guys, Uh, We're going to be having uh, just some episodes like these around movie reviews and potentially even maybe another interview episode until we can get uh, that completed and get that ready for you guys. Um, So in the interim, uh, just for those who really enjoy – the long-form episodes uh, about the history of the narrative of the Cold War. Just sit tight. We, we're, we're work, I'm working on those diligently. And just know that those are coming. And in the interim, we're going to be having some of these other uh, movie review and interview episodes.
2: Today, we're going to be talking about Dr. Strange Love, Stanley Kubrick's 1964 classic. Thanks to listener Yoni Schottenheim for the recommendation. Like any of our movie review episodes, this is going to be filled with spoilers. So if you haven't seen the movie... I recommend that you pause this podcast, go to iTunes, YouTube, Amazon, your local DVD store, wherever you go to get your videos. Check it out, and then join us back here.
1: So today we're going to be talking about uh, one of the greatest Cold War movies ever, a Dr. Strangelove. And, of course, it was directed by Stanley Kubrick, who is probably one of the, in my opinion, greatest directors. Um, I think a lot of people would agree with me. Um the movie more or less uh, focuses around uh, the insanity, if you will, of mad or mutually assured destruction uh which came to play a very, very big part of the cold war and Although we haven't really reached that part in the regular the regular narrative show that we do um it you know it's a very important part of the cold war um you know some of the interesting facts I just want to cover quickly about this movie before we get into reviewing it. Is, uh, you know, actually one of the actors, uh, Peter Sellers, actually plays uh, three parts in the movie, which I think is kind of interesting. You don't really see, I would say, especially in movies today, where one actor will play multiple parts in the same movie. Um, so he plays uh, Group Captain Mandrick, uh, the president, and he plays Dr. Strangelove. Um, and actually, he was supposed to play the pilot of the bomber as well. Um, but he felt that his Texas accent wasn't good enough, so he actually didn't have, end up playing that role. Um, it's very unusual. The movie itself is a very unusual mixture of comedy and suspense uh, and humor and horror. Um, so it's a very dark comedy. Um, and it's also the way that they shot the movie. It's unlike other comedies. It's, you know, the it's it uses very hard colors uh, when they're shooting the movie and a lot of you know it's it's just, it's shot as a serious film even though it is this sort of comedy the movie is listed in uh the third place for AFI's 100 laugh list uh which is kind of interesting as well um and the film was actually filmed in London uh because uh sellers who's obviously the main char- he plays multiple characters in the movie like i mentioned earlier He couldn't leave England because he was going through his divorce, so they filmed the whole movie on uh, basically three large uh, film studios in London. And uh, this movie, another interesting fact about it, the movie was supposed to air on November the 22nd, 1963. And uh, for those who might remember, that was actually the day that Kennedy was shot or assassinated. uh, So the movie was actually delayed until January 1964 when it came out. The movie as well is coming out after the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, so obviously a lot of people were worried. A lot of people were thinking about nuclear war and what potentially could go wrong since they came so close during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and it was so clear to everyone that they did come so close. So there was a lot more interest at that time versus today around what nuclear war would look like, how it could potentially start, and this is a Became to be one of the defining features, you know, the horror of madness uh, of the Cold War as the Cold War progressed. Um, the, ba- the book was, uh, I'm sorry, the the film was actually based off of the book uh, Red Alert, and uh, Kubrick actually, before the filming of this movie, he kind of got really interested in the idea, and from all accounts, he basically read something like 50 books on nuclear war in anticipation of making this movie. This and of course, is the other interesting thing this is Kubrick's only comedy movie, so that there he didn't shoot any other comedies um and like I had mentioned earlier, the film's kind of shot in like this noir kind of way it's very dark, and i don't think I can't think of any other comedy that's sh- you know shot in sort of this way. Jeff, if we could get a little bit of context
2: nineteen sixty four what is the general public's opinion? Of nuclear war at that point. To
1: so the general public's concerns, I think the general public was greatly concerned about nuclear war, um, especially as I mentioned, we came super close during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and everyone was quite aware of how close we came uh, during that specific crisis. Um, so people were building a lot of bomb shelters, you know, people in their backyards or their basements. Um, you know, people were really prepared for nuclear war, and you know, this is something that. They – many of them thought was unavoidable. A lot of people thought it was unavoidable and this was going to happen. It was only a matter of time, and either it was going to happen by accident or all-out or some type some type of political miscalculation. And uh, this is – this was more or less – and this is – a. those are some of the recurring themes in this movie and other Cold War movies at the time about nuclear war. Um so a lot of people didn't they just couldn't imagine a way out of it so it was very it was a very bleak kind of you know people were thinking about this Given that would you say that this is the peak of mass hysteria of the general public I wouldn't necessarily say hysteria because I think hysteria kind of uh gives it and I understand what you mean like I would say more general heightened awareness um of about the possibility I mean, obviously, people were very afraid, um, but it wasn't. There wasn't necessarily a panic. I don't want to give the the idea that there was a panic. You know, people, you know, but people were really concerned. I mean, it was something that, like I said, people expected to potentially have to live through. Unfortunately, Um, so at this point into the nineteen, hell, even into the nineteen eighties, now it did. You know, the during the Cold War, the fear around nuclear war was kind of like a, a, a roller coaster. Um, It went up and down uh, as the Cold War became more hot or cold, more vital, um, volatile. You had, you know, with the taunt, the the fears of of a nuclear war in the early 1970s started to decline because a lot of people felt it wasn't going to happen because we had found a way to work with the Soviets, um, you know, for the most part. But, you know, during the early 80s, fears around nuclear weapons and nuclear war came back with a vengeance right because at this point if reagan come in and you know reagan in his famous evil empire speech talks about how you know if 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 american children have to die because he you know they have to fight a nuclear war so be it i think he famously says and i'm I'm ruining a little bit here but you know i'm ad living he famously says in the speech that you know he basically would rather have america's youth die in a nuclear war than live to become communist so you know, people were at that point again very scared about what a nuclear war would, would would be, and there was a lot of TV specials and and movies again at the time that kind of reflect this. Uh, one of my favorites, personal favorites, uh, in the 1980s is the, you know the game, the movie War Games, right? Uh, you know, do you want to play a game, right? <laughs> and you know that's another movie I hope to review in the future. Um, but, yeah, so, so, you know, concern around nuclear war kind of goes up and down like a roller coaster at the Pacific time about how invested the public is in it. And I think, you know, obviously since the 1980s, we had a little bit of an uptick, I think, you know, with Korea recently where people were worrying about what a nuclear strike on Korea from Korea on the United States would mean. But, again, I don't think it reached the level of the 1980s or, or other periods of the Cold War. Um, so, I think at this point, most of the public doesn't doesn't really worrying about nuclear war, but you know nuclear war is still something that could very much happen. um Russia still has over a thousand nuclear warheads, and you know a miscalculation between the two you know powers could easily spark a nuclear confrontation. I think it's just not something we think about today because we're not really in that cold war context, even though recently unfortunately, relations between us and russia are are not good. Uh, we're not we're I would say that we're not we're not close to that again, so just like our previous two movie reviews we're gonna kind of go through the movie scene by scene more or less and make some comments about those scenes and talk about it a little bit and then we're gonna finish off with some of our final thoughts around the movie. so the movie opens with some scrolling statement that the Air Force says you know basically something like this couldn't happen uh, because of the fail safes that they have in place. And the characters are not based on real people, and I think the point that Kubrick is trying to say is that, yeah, the Air Force is saying this, but I'm what I'm saying is this could very much well take place, and that you know he the subtext that you know this that he is saying this is based off real people, and I, I can we can get to some of that, um, and then you basically have a voice that's narrating over these clouds that the Soviets have built a a, a doomsday device. Uh, and so then the first scene we have opens up on you know this Air Force base, and the base commander calls his uh, British liaison officer. He's actually the XO, and I know some people might ask, well, "Why is there a British officer that's XO at this Air Force base?" And they actually, as weird as this sounds, it's not too weird. It's um, you know this is obviously by 1964, NATO has been in place for a while. And officers would have exchange programs, and they ex- explain that a little bit. So technically speaking, Group Captain uh, Mandrick, who is well, Peter Sellers again, is uh, the exo-British officer who's in the RAF. And you know, the, the group commander, uh, he basically tells Mandrick that the base is being put on condition red and that the base is supposed to be sealed off. And that they're going for Plan R for the wing, and they're basically going to launch this attack. And that they're supposed to collect all the radios, and he tells Mandrick that, you know, basically they're at war.
2: How often would NATO forces exchange troops like this? And what is the experience like? Is it something where they go for a few weeks, or is it um, a long-term deployment, something like— In an educational context, uh, study abroad program in the United States, or in a European context, um, the Erasmus program.
1: As I can understand it, or, or as I've looked at it, it, it happened on a pre- pretty regular basis um, that they would have officers from different countries come to the United States, or American officers go to other countries. Um, you know. We wanted to build up military-to-military relationships, and it was also very important to NATO to kind of have these relationships in place and to be able to work together because they wanted the militaries to basically – I wouldn't say be integrated, but basically be able to communicate with each other on a very easy level because the idea is you know, once a shooting war began, you wanted to be able to work together as a team. Right, be it the, the Dutch Air Force or the British RAF or the Americans or who have you, that would be in the NATO alliance. So it was thought that having these rotating commands, having these liaison officers, having – you know these diplomatic contacts was a good idea because and when a war did unfortunately begin, they would be able to work together and it wouldn't they wouldn't be reaching out to these people for the first time you know they wouldn't be cooperating with the British or the Germans or the Dutch or the Canadians or who have you for the very first time so then the next scene opens where you know they the narrative explains um pretty much they start talking about operation Chromedone. they explain how these bombers. B-52s fly to these sites and prepare to fly into the Soviet Union. And again, Operation Chromedome was a real thing that happened from about 1960 to 1968 when B-52s would be on p- patrol near the Soviet Union w- with live nuclear weapons prepared to go on, to go in if there was an emergency. And the idea beyond, behind this was if there was a sneak attack or if there was a attack against the United States... America's bombers were already in the air, already at their target destination, not already at their standby destinations, ready to go into the Soviet Union at a moment's no, no, notice to hit them with nuclear weapons. Which the idea was that this would create a deterrence to the Soviets potentially launching a first strike capability. So then we see the uh, bom- one of the bomber crews, they get a coded message, uh, wing attack plan R, uh, and they confirm it. And we have this uh, more or less stereotypical uh, Texas uh, pilot who is the commander who, who has, you know, so he gets this order at to begin this mission. You know, he realizes this is his final mission. Obviously, it's an attack mission. So he, he goes down. He puts on this, you know, cowboy hat, and uh, they begin, you know, the, the mission to get to go in. And then he gives this uh, more or less inspirational speech. Uh, to the crew about how they're all going to get medals after this mission is over and how it's important for them to, to do their job. And I think this is kind of ironic because if you really think about it, well, if we're going to do our job right now and drop bombs on the Soviets, they probably have already nuked our house or home or it's going to be nuked shortly. So there's probably no place to go back to where we're going to get medals. So it's kind of ironic, and I think it's also meant the subtext of it is supposed to be you know the court, court of the madness of nuclear war. And just the futility of it.
2: What did the pilots of their time think of their mission? Did they think it was something ridiculous?
1: Well, I don't want to say what they were doing was ridiculous. That's not what I'm trying to say. You know, what I'm saying, it, the ridiculous part would be them coming back to get medals. Because more, more likely than not, the United States would have been nuked as well. Um, and there would not have been a society to go back to, to receive medals from. I think that's just to clarify my point is what I'm saying to say. Um, I think most of the pilots that I've read of, or that I've, I've seen, you know, transcripts of, you know, what they thought about it personally, um, most of them were prepared to do this because, and, and their view is, you know, they have to avenge the United States. You know, if our people are being wiped out, well, then we need to wipe them out and, you know our nuclear strategy was sort of built around this deterrence, again, of mad, mutually assured destruction. So they th- they saw it as vital that they would be able to do this mission to deter the Soviets, a, from even thinking about this, and then b, if God forbid the Soviets did decide to do this, well, then at least they would avenge our deaths and make them pay a cost, for, you know, for this decision. Um, so that's more or less, from what I understand, most of the, the bomber pilots thought about doing this mission. Uh, if there's any bomber pilots out there that are listening um, you know, to this podcast, I mean, please feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to hear your thoughts on it. We'd love to have you on the podcast to talk about that experience if that's something you're willing to come on to do. So in the next scene, we see General Trent, uh, who's played by George C. Scott, a.k.a. Patton. Uh, with his, I believe it's his mistress, but I'm not really 100 percent sure. She could also just be his secretary, who's he's. I don't want to say he's having an affair with, but it would be improper for him to be having this type of relationship with. You know, she's pretty much sitting there in a bikini, and he's like in the bathroom. They get this call. You know, he doesn't want to take a call. You know, his work is bothering him. He wants to hang out with you know his his young girlfriend here. Um, but basically, you know, he's alerted to this attack, so he has to run into the war room to kind of understand what's going on.
2: General Turgeson and his secretary seem to be in a relationship, and frankly, I don't think it's a subtle point that Stanley Kubrick's made.
1: So then the uh, general who is – went mad, who's sent off the bomber wing basically gets on the intercom and tells his men that you know they're at war and that they have to trust no one and to defend the base and that the base might be attacked by people who look like they're Americans but they're actually communists and that they should be prepared to defend the base uh, against a hostile attack, and that basically World War Three has begun.
2: Would NATO forces have to prepare for the possibility of fighting against companies that are also in
1: NATO gear? You know, that is something that I've read, that this was a concern, that, you know, you would be— that, they, the Soviets would try to trick, trick us somehow, or they would try to take control of the missiles, or I'm sorry, in this case, the bombers, and you know, come onto the base, and you had to be secure. You know, I, I kind of question, you know, how far would these guys follow orders? Um, that you know, they're told, okay, well, we're at war. You know, once you see other American troops pulling up, you know. I would begin to start personally. I would begin to start questioning my orders, saying, "You know that guy. These guys really sound like Americans. That guy sounds like he's from New Jersey, not Murmansk. So what is going on here?" Um, But then again, you know, a lot of times people follow orders, right? And these guys were handpicked, and you know, it was something that was drilled into them to follow orders. So it's a good question. You know, if something like this had happened, you know, would this Air Force base would they have put up a fight? Against these paratroopers that tried to come in to stop them um, that we see later in the movie we, you know we don't know um but uh you know by all accounts, this was something that they were prepared to do you know in case of an emergency so in the next scene we uh, again we flash back to the bomber and we see the crew they unlock their orders and they decide you know they have to limit their outside communications uh, uh, with the and then uh they get their targets, which is they're supposed to be hitting two Soviet missile ICBM sites. So then uh we go to the group captain and uh he notices that there's still music playing on the radios. So he accidentally turns one on. He's you know, so then he goes to the general and he confronts him. And he basically says that, you know, something's wrong. I don't think this is an actual nuclear war. I think this is, uh, you know, uh, basically just a test or, you know, a drill. And the general basically, you know, says, no, man, we're going to nuclear war. And, you know, this is, you know, that this is what I'm doing. And, you know, Mandrick's like, what are you talking about? You know, he, he, he tries to take over. He tries to relieve him of his command. Um, but then the general shows that he has a loaded uh, Colt forty five on his desk, and you know, basically Mandrake's, uh he's he's checkmate, right? What is he going to do? Everything gets get shot, right? And he's locked in there with him, so he's basically just you know trying to understand you know why the general's made this decision, and he pretty much makes a speech around you know the war has become too complicated for politicians. And this was a theme in the Cold War with various generals, um, most famous of which was General MacArthur, who got relieved of his command in Korea um, because you know a lot of generals felt that the politicians didn't know what they were doing and that if we were going to have a confrontation with the Soviets, especially a nuclear war, we should have it. Especially at this point in the early 60s, they should have it now because uh, at that point in time… The United States had uh, an advantage, a superiority in nuclear weapons over the Soviet Union, and many in the military felt if we launched a preemptive strike, we could wipe them out and suffer minimal casualties, maybe a few million. Uh, and, and again, this is not what I'm advocating. This is what they advocated and that we would be able to win or triumph in a nuclear war, and of course that in itself became a whole debate. You know, Can you win a nuclear war? Um, so – you know this idea that he has that politicians don't know what they're doing, and you know it was a minor strange, uh, you know a minor um, idea in the U.S. military. The U.S. military, historically speaking, has been extremely well disciplined in terms of following civilian leadership. Um, but there were uh, officers in the U.S. military that had other ideas and that thought that the military should be in charge of any potential war fighting against the Soviet Union and should be deciding policy to a certain extent.
2: What would von Clausewitz think of this situation or this kind of thought in the American military at the time?
1: Well, this is a very complicated question um, because it goes to – it it hits on two points. The, The first is obviously the United States is a democratic country, right? So we elect our politicians democratically to make these decisions for us. And we, unlike the Romans, you know, the, or the early early Roman Republic, we don't elect senators to lead our armies, right? Uh, the armies are led um, by a professional group of generals and admirals for the fleets, right? Um, who come up through this tradition that they have to follow civilian authority. Um, but on the other hand, to go back to von Clausewitz, uh, which is very true, is that war by its very nature has a has a heavy political element to it, right? It's not the – mili- the U.S., especially the U.S. military, tries to disconnect itself from this element, this political element, but it's very political, right? War is, if you agree with Klausowitz, which I, I tend to do, war is a continuation of politics by other means, right? You're trying to achieve some type of political outcome. And because of that, it – it becomes complicated because you now your, your military is in itself being drawn into these political decisions, and we're asking the generals not to have a, a political opinion and to a certain extent, and not to make political decisions. Even though you know we're trying to draw this clearly defined line, which by war and politics' very nature, you know these two forces are very in, uh, incestuous. So then we uh, flash back to the war room, and the president is meeting with his joint chiefs of staffs, and he's disturbed by what's happened that General Ripper, the wing commander here, has been able to approve an attack without his approval, right? Um, so then we have you know General George C. Scott here explain that there was this was the result of Plan R, which allowed a lower-ranking general the ability to launch a, a counterattack. Uh, on his own, if the chain of command had been eliminated in a decapitation strike. And this is something that they especially worried about in the early Cold War. There was a lot of concern around, well, what would happen if the Soviets smuggled a nuke into D.C. and set it off, right, thereby killing Congress, the president, and the vice president, right, Who who would take over, what would happen, right? And that the idea was, or the fear was, that the U.S. military would be crippled And we wouldn't be able to respond. And because of this, you know, during this time, we wrote up hundreds of different plans for different scenarios for nuclear war in the 1960s, thinking about every possibility, everything that could go wrong, right? This is where that term wargaming kind of comes into vogue, right? So I also – I think it's interesting – or the one point I love is that, you know… Uh, Chetrisan or the General Scott here. He's just he's eating gum. He's literally eating it. I don't know if you noticed this throughout the movie, but he's not chewing it. He doesn't chew like one piece. He just keeps eating like whole packs of that. Gum. Kind of gum
2: chewing is more befitting a press secretary.
1: And of course, then they you know they also they start talking about you know you know how how would you win a nuclear war? Is it possible to win a nuclear war? They start kind of having that. Discussion that we talked about earlier that was you know a big discussion around nuclear weapons in the 1960s so at this point, the President orders you know the army to attack the base, and you know he and then at this point general uh, Chetchson advocates an all- out war right He's like, well, you know at this point the bombers are already on their way. why don't we just all out attack the Soviets? You know we'll have no more than ten to twenty million people killed. And, you know, this to us seems, you know, outrageous or just like shocking that we would talk about losing so many Americans. But if you read through the documents, you know, the plans on nuclear war with the Soviet Union, right, These, they, this is what we're thinking about. And, right, and people were saying if we took 10 million casualties, that was an acceptable figure, right, if we were able to achieve. Again, going back to the idea that a lot of people thought winning a nuclear war was, was that was something that we could do um and you know an advocate of this was general Curtis LeMay, right you know he basically felt that again we had this advantage in the 1960s we should use this advantage that we have totally annihilate them and if we lose 10 to 20 mil- million people well that's regrettable but we'll have won the war and we will there will be no more soviet union to worry about
2: weren't they concerned about uh nuclear fallout or a nuclear winter
1: So they were aware of uh, nuclear fallout at the time. And, you know, nuclear winter, you know, was something that was beginning. They were beginning to have conversations around. But, again, they were just like, well, yeah, there'll be some environment. It's, it's, It's shocking in retrospect how they just kind of. I guess brushed off these concerns, but they're like, yeah, there'll be a nuclear winter potentially, and we'll have all this radiation. But you know what? Thirty percent of the population will still be intact. You know, we could still come back in a hundred years. You know, so and you see this kind of reflected in the conversations that they have in the movie. You know, about how much of the population will be just killed and how quickly we could come back. You know, it was a lot of, it was really much war by Excel spreadsheets. Even though obviously they didn't have Excel spreadsheets, I mean, they're just looking at the pure numbers of it. They're not looking at the agony of the millions of people that got killed, the people that would have died so many weeks later because of the radiation and the fallout, right? They're just looking at it from a pure numbers point of view. How much do we have left versus the other guy, and could civilization move on? And for them, the answer was yes. So you know, at this point, we have the uh, Russian ambassador. You know, he's invited into the war room because they're trying to alert him to what's going on. And then we switch back to um, the bomber, and we see that they're preparing their survival kits, and you know they they have a pistol and you know money and everything else in case they get shot down. And then from there they switch back to the the war room, and the ambassador and the general they get into a fight, and you know the, at this point the president reminds them, which is one of the funniest lines in the movie. You know, is he's like, "Hey, there's there's no fighting in the war room, gentlemen." And I think this kind of gets to the madness of the whole situation, in that you know we're about to fight a nuclear war, you know, and but these two guys having a physical altercation is somehow unacceptable, right? And I think it goes to, you know, the whole thing about technology. You know, if if you're killing people from thousands of miles away and it's done in such a way that's technologically done. And then it's considered civilized. But if you punch another guy in the face in the middle of the war room, well, then that's considered barbaric to a certain extent or savage. So it gets into this whole kind of thing about human nature and about how we've reached a point where we're civilized in the fact that you know it's totally unacceptable that these guys are rolling around on the ground with each other. But on the other hand, we're totally okay with having all these horrible weapons that could kill millions of people. So it's this weird juxtaposition that he kind of illustrates through that whole one little scene, which I really like. So then we see the base, you know, basically comes under attack. Um, The army is trying to take back the the Air Force base to try to stop or bring back the bomber wing. And then, you know, we go back to the war room and, you know, they're they're calling the Soviet premier who is drunk. And I think this was a mild joke about Khrushchev because they used to say Khrushchev drank a lot, and the president and you know tries to explain that you know what happened that one of his generals went mad and that he sent in a bomber wing and that they can't turn them around, and then the you know the Soviet ambassador warns them that the Soviets have this doomsday device which will basically bro- blow up the planet uh, if the Soviet Union comes under a nuclear attack because. You know they've decided to go along with this new plan and build this device uh, as a cost-saving measure because it would be easier than to keep building up their military at a fraction of the cost. Um, and then, so then the president asks uh, Doctor Strangelove, who you know first appears now, about like, is this possible? And Doctor Strangelove says, well, it's highly possible, but why would you build such a device without telling anybody, <laughs> right? And of course, the Soviet says, the ambassador says. You know, we didn't have a chance to yet before you guys launched this attack. We were supposed to announce it on Monday. And, you know, to the historical relevancy of this doomsday, uh, doomsday device, ironically, this was something that was proposed to Nikita Khrushchev uh, in the 1960s. They had sought to actually build a cargo ship with a hull of uranium or physical material That would be loaded up with atomic bombs, and the idea was that this ship would sail around the Soviet Union or other points in the world and that if at any point Soviet communism or the Soviet Union came under direct threat that it might fall or be overtaken, they would detonate this ship and thereby create such a nuclear blast that it would kill all life on Earth. And luckily for us, Nikita Khrushchev thought that this weapon was going way too far and decided not to produce it. But it was proposed. So as crazy as it seems, there was a doomsday device that was proposed. So then we get back to the base and Ripper explains to Mer- Mandrick that he the communists don't drink water and he he basically tells Mandrick, you know, this conspiracy theory about fluorides being added into the drinking water. And, you know, I don't know if you're, many people might not be aware, but fluorides are something that they added into the drinking water in the 1950s that help uh, teeth, you know, here in America. And a lot of people at the time were very worried about it. So there was a ton of conspiracy theories in the 1950s around fluorides being in the water. Um, so, you know, we often think of conspiracy theories as something that's more relevant to today with things like chemtrails or you know gem- genetically modified food and such um but you know they had them as well back then um so it's it's kind of interesting that now you know as we live in this age of all these different conspiracy theories you know that even back then it was a thing, and this general has basically decided to launch this attack based on this conspiracy theory. So we flash back to the base and, you know, obviously they're explaining more about the Doomsday device and, you know, Dr. Love, were introduced to him. And, you know, Dr. Strangelove is basically it's mocking um, all the ex-Germans who we brought over to the United States to help us after the war through things like Operation Paperclip. So, you know, uh, one prominent member of this would be uh, Werner von Braun, who helped to build the Saturn V rocket to get us to the moon. Um, and they also make fun of uh, rand the rand corporation they say bland there's a bland study, but they you know it's it's a reference to the rand corporation and you know um, he also Dr Strangelove explains how this doomsday device is you know capable with uh, memory tape uh, and you know large computers and I think that's kind of funny because at that time you know memory tape uh, was a big thing, uh, you know, because for computer technology. So it was more or less, you know, one of the the breaking technologies of the day.
2: Yeah, I think we still sold it at IBM
1: when we were working there.
2: As far as the Nazi scientists, was it something where they had uh, concerns about their loyalties?
1: No, not really, because there was no Nazi Germany left. Um, so I mean, they they weren't really worried about these guys defecting anywhere, and these guys. We're pretty dependent on the United States because, you know, if they didn't work for us, we probably would have turned them into um, war crimes tribunals. Um, so they they pretty much didn't have any choice. It was either work for us and have a comfortable, somewhat comfortable life, or it was like we're going to put you on trial for all the war crimes that you committed. Um, so that was more or less the the choices that they had in life at that point. So many of them chose to cooperate with us. So then we, we flash back to the airbase, and they're still under attack. And, you know, at one point it's kind of funny, we see this giant sign, you know, peace is our profession sign, and out, obviously out in front of it you have these guys, like, shooting at each other and dying. And, you know, Ripper is still explaining his conspiracy theory around fluorides. And then, you know, I really liked the combat scenes in this, I thought they were a really good uh, element of the, of the film, they really seemed real. And I think part of this is, from what I understand, they were actually filmed with handheld uh, World War II combat cameras. Uh, which I thought was an interesting part of the film. So, man, the one interesting thing about the conversation between um, Ripper and Mandrake is that it focuses a lot around body fluids, and you know this is actually of course a reference to uh, basically sexual based themes throughout the movie, um, and this goes at first when I you know first started I, I didn't quite know what Kubrick was getting at, but. From what I understand, in doing a little research about the movie, as this was a whole comment on the Eros kind of theme, you know, the Greeks and the Romans believed that war and violence had this kind of connection to sex and love, and that, you know, the one kind of played off of the other. Um, so that's kind of why these sexual themes, he kind of put them in there. Um, so that, and that opens with the very beginning of the movie. You see a B 52. Um, which is getting refueled, and it 's sort of you know a reflection of some kind of mechanical copulation and then, if you also note all the different cigars and phallic images you know throughout the movie um, and then you know as we move forward, you know the general basically ripper kills himself and you know once his men, he finds out his men has sur- have surrendered the base so then we we flash back to the bomber and you know they check on their gas and you know they see where they're going and then all of a sudden they get shot by a surface to air missile they take some damage the radios destroyed so now they have no way to receive or the recall order and that they're leaking fuel so they drop down to uh so many feet to avoid enemy radar and then we go back you know to the shoot back to the base and You know, uh, Peter Sellers is saved slash arrested by this American captain who breaks into the office where he and uh, Ripper had been having this conversation. And to me, this seemed one of the most unrealistic parts of the movie. It's highly unlikely that after this big shootout that a a colonel would step through the the door, you know, to arrest him would probably have been a sergeant or something like that. Um, you know, but then he convinces him to help him call the president so that they can try to order the planes back. And then at you know one point he orders the or he asks slash orders uh, the colonel to shoot into this coke machine to get changed to call the president. Uh, but they're successful and it looks like they're able to recall the bombers. You know, we flash back to the war room, and um, you know, but you know, the, all the bombers start turning around, but unfortunately. So we see one of the bombers, though, is still on its course, the one that got damaged, the one we've been following all along. In the movie, it showed a B-52,
2: a large four-engine aircraft, flying at roughly around 1,000 feet. Was it common for a large jet and a large bomber like that
1: to be flying at such a low altitude? So from what I understand, originally the B-52 was built and intended as a high-altitude bomber, Um, but later in the Cold War, uh, as Soviet air defenses improved, they were flown at very low levels to be able to hit targets. Uh, So that is, it was capable for them to bring the plane down that low to hit targets from what I understand. So at this point, the president tells the Russian premier, you know, basically what the bomber's intended targets were, and you know at the, he tells the Russians that you should put all of your fighter defenses and anti aircraft weapons into those two zones because we know that that 's where their targets were, so that you can take out the bomber uh, but we don't know though is that the bomber has basically you know they because they 've got hit and they 're losing fuel, they have to change targets. So they change targets to the, a target of opportunity, which obviously the Russians are not have not defended because they've rushed their defensive weapons or capabilities to these other two zones. Their initial targets. So you know the bombers on the final bomb run, and then the bomb bay doors won't open. So the pilot goes down to open the bomb bay do- doors, um, but they're broken, and he can't get them open. And then he goes. The pilot goes down himself, and he famously tries to, you know, he basically opens the bomb bay doors and rides the bomb down as it hits the target. Um, and I, as you notice, one of the bombs actually has "Dear John" on it, which is ironic because, um, through the movie, especially when we focus on the bomber, you know, you'll notice the movie that's play, or I'm sorry, the song that's playing in the background. Is when Johnny comes marching home again, right? So they, it's kind of this juxtaposition that they threw in there, which I thought was kind of interesting. So then we see that the bomb, you know, has, uh, you know, basically detonated, and they and we go back to the war room and they're having this conversation about what to do with the rest of humanity, you know, who could be saved and how they're all going to move down in these mine shafts, and each of the men are going to have ten women. And, you know, this conversation is just absurd to a certain extent, Um, especially because I I think on the one level, you know, if this doomsday device is about to go off, you're not going to be able to get enough people quick enough. You're not going to be able to move 700,000 people into these mine shafts quick enough, right? The the bombs probably – this doomsday device is probably going to go off within the next few hours, right, at best if you even have that much time. So humanity is basically done, right? But these guys are talking about these possibilities about saving the race and everything else, um, which is kind of ludicrous. And again, I think it goes to the madness of it. Also, you notice that um, Doctor Strangelove begins this whole funny fight with his hand. His, you know, he, he his hand keeps doing the hail Hitler salute, and he keeps stopping himself from calling the president Mein Fuhrer. And I think that is a reflection or that goes to how in the whole movie, like man is losing control of the robots or the devices that he has built, right? So we have all this technological progress, yet the technological progress is these systems and machines that we're building are controlling us more than we are controlling them. And I think that's reflected by how his arm is like having this whole little rebellion and he's biting it and everything else. Um, I also think it's of note that, Everyone's standing around and listening to what this guy is saying, yet like he's also having a fight with his hand at the same time. And he's saying all these other crazy things about Mind Fuhrer. So it's interesting that they're taking advice from this guy in <laughs> that particular moment. So Yeah, what an amusing scene.
2: I thought one of the funniest aspects of it was that here's the end of civilization, and yet one of the big concerns was do the Russians have an advantage in the mines and are they going to have more people? And when they get out in a hundred years, are they going to be able to overtake America?
1: Yeah. I think that was too, was a pun during the time because uh, there was uh, the, the first, uh, you know, they're, they're always talking about gaps, right? So the the first, one of the first big gaps in, in the cold war was the bomber gap, right? So there was a period of time where, United States feared that Russia had more bombers than the U.S., right? And it was, we found out later on that wasn't the case. And then there was a missile gap, right? People thought that Russia had more missiles than we did. And, you know, the mineshaft gap goes just hand in hand with all these other gaps, right? Like, you know, like Joyce C. Scott says, we can't have a mineshaft gap, right? (laughs) Which is one of the last things that he says, which is, you know, kind of funny about that.
2: Final thoughts on the movie, Jeff?
1: Oh well, yeah, so I think you know the movie is is a like i said it's a it's a great movie. I think it goes a lot to the concerns that people had during the Cold War. I think it's even watchable today um you even if you haven't seen the movie yet, you should probably see it before you listen to this, but you know even in the twenty first century you know some how many decades after it was made, I think the movie's still watchable it's still um It still has a lesson to be told about the dangers of nuclear war and about the dangers of human technology, about the dangers of miscalculation, about the absurdity of nuclear war um, or the thoughts around those weapons. Um, So I think it has a lot to offer, and I think it's, it's a great movie. I would definitely recommend it. It's one of my favorite movies about the Cold War. And in a way, I think it was one of the, the initial movies of my youth that got me really interested in the Cold War. I first saw this movie, I think, when I was like 9 or 10 years old, and I kind of watched it through subsequent parts of my life. I think the last time, actually, I it's been a while since I saw it. I think the last time I saw it, I was like 16, 17. Um, but, you know, looking at the movie from different vantage points in life, um, you know, gives you a different kind of read on it as well. What do you
2: think Stanley Kubrick ultimately wanted to share with his audience, and why do you
1: think he did it as a dark comedy? I I feel like his intention was I want to – I think he wanted to share with – since he had read all these books about nuclear war, he read like 50 books, like I said, about it from what I understand. He wanted to share with people the dangers of nuclear war and what was happening. But I think when they started filming it, he he wanted to do it. I think as a comedy or as a dark comedy because I don't think he, if if you would have just did it straight, which we're going to review in another movie, where it's just it's so dark and so depressing that I don't think people can really come away with a message about, you know, what the dangers are or like how do you keep how do you keep an audience engaged in something so bleak. Right. And such and so horrible. And I think that was kind of his his struggle. And I think he kind of thought, well, if I make it a dark comedy, I can explain to people the reality of the situation that we're in or at least as he took it and the problems that we face. Right. So that we can somehow begin to discuss these issues. Right. And I think he tried to use comedy as a way by which uh, we as a society could begin to kind of comprehend and discuss these issues and to kind of illustrate to some people who are unaware of the madness of the situation, right?
2: Do you see any parallels between Dr. Strangelove and Death of Stalin, another movie that we reviewed?
1: Yeah, I think it is – there is a, the parallel that it is a dark comedy, I think, and it's a dark political comedy to a certain extent. I think um, they both deal with very heavy subjects um the one of which did happen the other which did not happen um so i think it's a little easier for us to or at least for me personally to digest this one because obviously it didn't it didn't happen when we we didn't kill all these people um but you know they were still pointing at realities of the situation at the, at those particular particular times but they were trying to put it in such a narrative that it was digestible to an audience to kind of understand what was happening and to keep them engaged um, about what was happening, so how
2: close were we to total nuclear annihilation as depicted at the end of Dr. Strangelove?
1: My personal opinion is that if you would have played black played back the the clock and you would have just done it out so many scenarios out, I think eighty to ninety percent of the time, my personal feeling that we have nuclear war. I think it's I, I think it was unlikely that we had the scenario that we did where the Soviet Union falls apart safely and, you know, we don't have a nuclear confrontation. I mean, there were a number of times where we we came close to nuclear confrontation. There were a number of accidents with nuclear weapons. You know, so the fact that we didn't use them, I find, and especially the other thing is that nuclear weapons, especially after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, really became taboo. Nobody's really used them since then. But in the 1950s and in the 1960s there was a lot of talk around using nuclear weapons again. And a lot of, you know, th- there was some talk especially in the Eisenhower administration that against this taboo because they were saying like, you know, what nuclear weapons the Soviets have made nuclear weapons into a taboo a taboo. They shouldn't be a taboo. They're just like any other weapon and we should be able to use them like any other weapon. And I think if we had used them and they did become like any other weapon, you know, even on the regional level, I mean, it would be horrible from an environmental point standpoint, not only a human standpoint, but even if you had a limited nuclear exchange between countries like Pakistan and India. And I think if we had, as the United States, used try to use nuclear weapons in a limited sense, even if it didn't cause a general nuclear war between us and the Soviet Union it would have opened a door, and it would have become acceptable for nations to use nuclear weapons in limited context, and even that I think, would have had detrimental effects on the environment and would have killed far more people in the late 20th century or even today in the early in the alternative 21st century.
2: I saw a chart once that has deaths by um, human deaths by percentage of the population through war. And you see this precipitous drop after the advent of nuclear weapons. I say that to ask this question, do you think on the whole, and the way that things have worked out, that nuclear weapons have been successfully used as a deterrent for for war and as a consequence has actually saved human lives?
1: I think it's a good question. I think it's it's a it's like a, it's, it's almost like a counterfactual. Uh, it is factual, right? In that we we uh, we haven't had a nuclear war. You know the detents the deterrence worked um, for the. Mo- I would say it, it worked, right? I, I, you can't say it didn't, but it's hard to run back the counterfactuals on that because we don't know, right? Like yes, in this timeline everything worked out, so it appears that yes nuclear weapons were a good deterrent and it it stopped us from having world war 3 but on the other hand we came extremely close on a number of occasions to having world war 3 and you know a lot of those situations we didn't have nuclear war because of luck because certain people had decided to make the right decisions to not pull the trigger but again if you would play it back and they had made other decisions we very easily could have gone to have a nuclear war so you know there is a good argument to be had. You can't argue against that that having nuclear weapons and the amount that we did deterred the Soviets from using their their nuclear weapons, and then vice versa. You know them having an, a large number of nuclear weapons more or less deterred us from from going down that path, right? But you know I would say it did keep it, it stopped the potential for a, a third world war, but there's also, you know, that nuclear weapons weren't the only thing. I mean, we had a functioning United Nations. I mean, a lot of people, obviously, the United Nations, it's a lot of heat from both the left and the right. for it's perceived, uh, you know, it's perceived faults. But you could say, that, you know, since we had the United Nations as well since 1945, we haven't had a World War Three, right? Um, you know, and it's a different world uh, since since that time. So, you know, was it only the nuclear weapons? It's hard to tell. I think it was definitely a piece of it. I think I couldn't argue that it, that wasn't a part of of why the the Cold War turned out to be successful. But you know,
2: any final thoughts?
1: Again, I think it's a great movie, and I think you should definitely check it out. It's great for these types of conversations. I think you know, it's also an interesting way to you know engage. Um, Well, I don't know. I mean, I think for me, I grew up during the very tail end of the Cold War, so I have some realization. It would be interesting to me what kids today would think of the movie if I had high school kids and they watched the movie, what their thoughts would be. Because I don't know if anybody really talks to them about nuclear war or if that's even something that is on their immediate horizon, right, that this is a possibility. So I think I would be interested if I was a high school teacher, like kind of playing this movie to kind of – if this could generate a conversation – With younger generations about it i mean to me i think the movie still plays great i still think you know you get a lot of the characters and the actings i think everyone all the actors in it do a great job so i think obviously some of the jokes they might not get because they're very um uh, time specific but i think you know there's still a lot to me there's still a good message there so i would be interested to see you know what younger people thought of it
2: thank you Thank you for joining us for our movie review episode number three, Dr. Strange love. We'd love to hear about what you thought about the movie. Please let us know on social media, which you can find all our links to at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com. If you have any questions, concerns, if you thought Dr. Strange love was a good movie, not so great, please let us know. You can find links to Facebook and Twitter there. Please let us know if you have any Cold War movie recommendations as Yoni did about Dr. Strangelove. Let us know what Cold War movies you'd like for us to talk about. Also, if you'd like to help us keep the podcast going with donations so that we can pay for our hosting as well as our website cost. And while on our website. Don't forget to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show.
0: annual membership fee applies participating locations only see club for details at planet fitness you can get down with your judgment free self join for only one dollar down ten dollars a month no commitment now through january 15th planet fitness has cardio weights and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of new year's champagne only one dollar down ten dollars a month no commitment now through january 15th join in club or online at planetfitness.com planet fitness the judgment free zone Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.